The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. My wife Donna is here t- today also. And she's a really big part of the Rochester Meditation Center. She um, organizes a monthly Dharma movie club. We saw one just on Friday night, a uh, Dharma movie called Young at Heart, which is awesome. Um, it's about a group of, it's a chorus of traveling chorus of senior citizens, average age is 80, and they specialize in singing punk rock songs. And it's just an awesome movie, um, full of Dhamma, as you might expect. And um, also does organizes various community volunteer activities like hospital visits. And um, last year Donna did a origami workshop. And Folding origami is very mindful. <laughs> I mean, if you do it right. So, so glad Donna's with me here today. So I mentioned that the Dhamma talk this morning is organized around a mantra that's used and taught by the Zen teacher, Thich Nhat Hanh. And the mantra is, Darling, I'm here for you. It's one of four mantras that he teaches. It's his version of teaching the Brahma Viharas, um, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with here at this Theravada center. It's basically, that's the Buddha's teachings on love. The Brahma Viharas, the first one of which is metta, loving kindness. And so, darling, I'm here for you, is a, a metta meditation, metta practice. I don't know, I, I kind of feel compelled to say that whenever I talk on this topic, if you hear me pause for a while, it's usually because I'm trying to check my emotions. Uh, I give a lot of Dharma talks, but when I talk on this one, I often have to remind myself to stay dry. <laughs> so that's what I'm doing if there's a long pause, usually. Um, so it's, it's, it's just a few reflections on love. You know, what love is, what you might say true love is not the Hollywood version, not the love of if I give you love, I'll get back love. Uh, it's also not the love of lust. It's, it's, it's so much larger than that. In fact, it's actually about reality. That's what love is. It's, it's really... It's really working with this topic and working with this mantra and working with the Buddha's Dhamma to understand reality as love. So that it's not an abstraction. It's easy to say, but it's working with the Buddha Dhamma so that we, in our actual experience, in our perceptions, our bodies, our thoughts, every moment, it's understanding reality itself as love. 
That's how big the topic is. So it's very helpful to break it down a little bit so we have kind of discrete channels into that understanding, which is so vast. Um, and, and also to know like specific practices uh, that are rooted in the tangible, immediate experience that we have as living beings. So that, again, it's, it's, it's a real thing and not just an abstraction or an ideal that we can never reach. But it's something that we can experience like that. So Thich Nhat Hanh is really good at offering these different types of very specific and helpful channels into this understanding that reality is love. This is love. The body is love. Thoughts are love. Emotions are love. Perceptions are love. They're made out of love. So one of his one of his ways to help us you know, experience it and know how to experience and to reach this understanding immediately in our experiences through a teaching that he calls to love means to listen. So the gist of it is here, and I'm just going to read you a short paragraph from Thich Nhat Hanh, but the gist of it is simply that at any moment, if we want to understand this vast uh, claim, proposition, uh, that we just need to know how to listen the right way. And then we can just make an inner adjustment so that we're really listening in a true, actual way. And then, then we'll know what's meant by this love is reality. So here, here are a few words from Thich Nhat Hanh. He says, Dear friends, to love means to listen. Listening is a very important practice. There is a voice calling us, and it wants us to listen. It may be that our body is calling us and wants us to listen to our body. It may be our feelings that are calling us and wants us to listen to them. It may be our perceptions that want us to listen. It's a very important, it's very important for us to pay attention to that voice. The capacity of listening to ourselves is the foundation of the capacity of listening to others. The capacity to love others depends on the capacity of loving ourselves. Which means being able to listen to ourselves. So, you know, the Buddha often teaches you know, as we just let those words soak in a little bit. The Buddha often teaches in different ways to discriminate. Um, meaning, as we listen, which means to observe, 
to discriminate very simply well in terms of the voice you could say which is the metaphor that Thich Nhat Hanh gave here where is that voice coming from and in one of his famous suttas the Buddha talks about taking those voices that come from um, you could say the ego the I the selfish I and putting them in one basket and taking the the voices or the words that are coming from wholesome and good qualities and put them in another basket and that training ourselves to respond when there's a beep I guess I should wake up now <laughs> I don't know which button should I did I press I guess the I, I pressed the right one but it might just be the snooze button <laughs> okay thank you I'm, I'm making an effort to speak slowly. You know, these are big, big things. You know, and of course, as with all Dharma talks, the thing is to keep the attention really focused on what's happening internally, being aware of the words, but not trying to understand them intellectually, because we are talking about this is a realm beyond concept. Yeah. So the important thing is to just be checking internally, seeing what's happening in the body, in the feelings, the emotions, in the perceptions. And, you know, the, the simple check on this discrimination is when a thought comes in, or as Tishnathan says, a voice comes in, the check is, is this thought relaxing me or tensing me? That's the check. It's so simple. And it's very easy to do. And one of the beautiful things about Dhamma, in my experience, is it's a set of thoughts, concepts, that are actually relaxing. Now, that's a very unusual kind of concept and thought. Right? Most thoughts are driving us nuts. But the Dhamma is a category of thoughts and concepts that lead to relaxation and ease. So not all thoughts and concepts are bad. This, of course. Right view, the first step of the Noble Eightfold Path, is about concepts, thinking, thinking rightly, thinking in line with reality. So, again, um, you know, training to discriminate, and then Tishnat Han makes the point: it's listening. There are these signals that are coming through that are calling us. If we notice the signal is relaxing us, and the signal could be a voice, it's a very profoundly helpful practice to um, stay with that voice, listen to that voice. And this is a little bit of a theme of my offering this morning to to know its source to know its source I mean the relaxation is yummy it's beautiful we want it 
But as the signal comes in and as we relax, it's really important to realize where you're putting your attention. And the, in skillful practice, the attention doesn't go to the, to the object, even to the object of relaxation. It goes to the source. It stays with the source. It rests in the source. So, yeah, I'd like to share a story that at first doesn't maybe seem like love, but it really is about love. And um, it ties in very much with what Thich Nhat Hanh is saying as well. I like stories that they're a, a little bit puzzling because... The puzzle helps us to see clearer if it works. And there's this, there's another aspect to this, which is, and, and I invite you to check in your own experience and see if this isn't true. Isn't it true that there are things that are said sometimes by teachers that you just know are true? It doesn't make any sense whatsoever to the thinking mind, but it's but you know it's true. And so it's it's kind of exerting a a pull and part of the pull is to just relax into the apparent meaning but and the pull is also to figure it out in that wholesome way not not in the way of like figuring out a crossword puzzle or a math problem but because it's right practice to figure this puzzle out and so this this one comes from the, a sutta called the Rohitasa Sutta, one of the most famous of the Pali scriptures, said to have been told by the Buddha himself. And uh, it's a story about a, a fellow named Rohitasa who comes to the Buddha to ask a question, and he introduces himself as... Rohitasa, and he, he explains that um, in an earlier life, a life that he's very cognizant of and aware of, he used to be what's called a skywalker. He, he was able to and did travel the heavens, bounded through the universe. It's said that his one stride went from the eastern ocean to the western ocean. Yeah, And he just jumped from galaxy to galaxy. And he spent all his life seeing if he could get to the end of the universe. And but he never got there. In a full lifetime, he, with his all of his skywalking abilities, including the abilities to literally jump off one galaxy to the next and all the way out, he never got to the end. So in this new life, he's coming to the Buddha and he said, "You know, I never got to the end. Is 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 there a way to get to the end of the universe where where where, where it's beyond?" life and death and beyond suffering, can you get there by traveling? That was his question, literally. That's how it literally translates. Can you get there by traveling? And the Buddha's answer was, um, right here in this very body, he says, in this fathom-long body, you know, right here in this very body, with its thoughts and perceptions, 
is the beginning of the universe, the universe, and the end of the universe. The Buddha said. And then he added, and this one is not usually tacked on, but it's right there in the sutta. And you cannot get there by traveling. He doesn't say much more than that in the sutta. But so see, he leaves it as a puzzle for us to figure out. Now to me, that's a really powerful puzzle. And I've spent years recognizing this is one of the puzzles that keeps drawing me back to understand it. You know, like, wait, the sun and the moon are in here? (laughs) Is that possible? What is he talking about? Uh, I look up in the night sky and I see what looks to be an endless distance. And it doesn't seem to be in here right away. It seems to be very much out there. So what does the Buddha mean by saying that it's in here and then I can know the beginning and the end of all this right here? What does he mean? Um, so when we invited the bell, may the sound of this bell penetrate deeply into the cosmos so that beings, even those in dark places, may hear it and be free from birth and death. May all beings realize awakening and find their way home. Home is the place you don't get to by traveling. You're already there. We're already here. Right? The Brahma Viharas, which is the Buddhist teachings on love, the literal translation of the word Brahma Vihara is divine abode. Home. The place you don't get to by traveling. So, and home is where you feel safe and protected, healthy, happy, and at ease. And we're already there. The teaching seems to say. Just to play with the metaphor a little bit more. Everything is here. Um, you know, we, we can we can understand pretty well intellectually, if not yet quite experientially or tangibly or viscerally, but we can understand intellectually, which is the big first step, right? That sights all happen here, right? It looks like it's out there, but it's all happening in here. Sounds are a little bit easier to feel like they're right here because when we close our eyes, it's the street, but it's really happening here. So sights and sounds are happening here. Tastes and touch and smells are happening here. Thoughts are happening here. Emotions are happening here. Memories are happening here. Everything's happening here. Intellectually, we can get it. And if everything's happening here, there's an intimacy to everything, isn't it? There's an intimacy. Everything's intimate. On a day that we're worried about something, there might also be a flash of a memory of something beautiful, or one of these puzzling statements may come through, or or we might hear the voice, darling, I'm here for you, and it's all happening in the same place. There's an intimacy. And intimacy is love. 
It's oneness. It's non-separation. So I'm just offering these as like ways to kind of cultivate that sense of what love really is. And what home really is. It's, it's, it's important as we puzzle this out to understand what traveling is too. What is traveling? What is that? What's the mistake we make in thinking that we can get to the place where there's no birth and death by traveling? That was Rohitasa's problem. He thought if he just kept bounding over galaxies, he'd finally get there. But he never did. And the Buddha said, no, that's not how you get there. You get there by staying where you are. So what is this traveling? So I think this is another thing the Buddha gives a lot of explicit instructions on. Um, as I understand it, traveling is going, is, is, is uh, extending our consciousness, our, our, our awareness towards an object that we think will bring us happiness. That's traveling away from the source towards a ham sandwich in the fridge or towards whatever your thing is. Uh, it could be a food, could be any kind of object, a relationship, an activity. Um, all the many places that we go to get what we think will make us complete and fulfill us and any time we do that, we're extending our consciousness in the wrong direction. We're going away from home, right? And so the practice is to return to pure consciousness. If that sounds too abstract, you can say return to the breath. And when you return to the breath, you let go of the thought that says you should go to the fridge. And you return home. And you just... Stay with yourself and see what happens. And that's actually the practice of love. Oh. Here's a nice thing that Thich Nhat Hanh says on this. This is a little, a little paragraph on not traveling, you could say. And it's, it's another way that Tishnan Han explains how love really works. So he says, from time to time you may become restless. So that's, that's the ham sandwich. And the restlessness will not go away. At such times, just sit quietly, follow your breathing, smile a half smile, and shine your awareness on the restlessness. Don't judge it or try to destroy it. Because this restlessness is you yourself. And he doesn't say it, but you know, try not to actually go to the fridge too. So don't judge it or try to destroy it because this restlessness is you yourself. It is born, has some period of existence, and fades away quite naturally. Don't be in too big a hurry to find its source. Don't try too hard to make it disappear. 
just illuminate it. You will see that little by little, it will change, merge, become connected with you, the observer. Any psychological state that you subject to this illumination will eventually soften and acquire the same nature as the observing mind. That last bit is so huge. What's the observing mind? It's mindfulness. It's consciousness. It's awareness. It's so simple. It's just what notices things. It's the noticer. It's the observer. It's so pure. What are its qualities? Or as he say, the nature. What are its qualities? Openness. Non-judgment. Ease. Clarity. Brightness. And I always like to put this one in too. Invulnerability. It's invulnerable. Emptiness cannot be harmed. It's love. He's talking about love. The observing mind is love. That's what love means to the Buddha. It's what knows. What does it know? Everything. What is it? Everything. Everything is a knowing. It looks like a something. But the something is known. It's essentially a knowing. So, you know, this is the practice. And anytime we want to just get specific and tangible down to the level of this human and therefore limited in a sense being, how do we touch love? We observe without traveling. We stay at home and we see what happens. And we're already at home. So that's the effort we make. We don't make Rohitasa's mistake. Right? I just got this image of a ham sandwich at the end of the universe. <laughs> Never going to get there. <laughs> Maybe just a couple of other things. So how do we work with I am here for you? Here's Tich Nhat Hanh. The greatest gift we can make to others is our true presence. I am here for you is a mantra to be uttered in perfect concentration. When you are concentrated, mind and body together, you produce your true presence and anything you say is a mantra. It doesn't have to be in Sanskrit or Tibetan. A mantra can be spoken in your own language. Darling, I am here for you. And if you are truly present, this mantra will produce a miracle. You become real. The other person becomes real. And life is real in this moment. 
you can bring happiness to yourself and to the other person. This is a miracle. And then in my notation, I wrote, Amen. He often says, too, right after he says words like this, he'll often tell stories that you say it to your beloved, but the first beloved is this. It's it's this body-mind that needs love. This is the one that we're closest to, that we... Um, that we know the most needs love. And so learning how to give love to this one is the first step. It's the hardest one. And in a sense, it's the only one, but it's for sure where we need to start. We need to learn how to give love to this one. And one of the channels or one of the practices that we can do is just to know or get a sense of how the love flows is long before we can really learn how to love this one. Nature, for example, and this is what Tishnat Han often will say, there are other channels, and nature is such a big one. Nature, meaning the moon, the sun, the wind, a beach, a crackling fire, you know. We can get a sense of how of how this love works, this sense of intimacy and the sense of oneness, by, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, he'll, he'll, he'll walk out on a moonlit night, night and he looks up at the moon and he says, darling, I am here for you. And the second mantra, which, which, which he offers of his four mantras is, darling, I know you are there and it makes me so happy. These aren't sappy. Uh, you know, if you know Thich Nhat Hanh's story, you know that he, he grew up, he matured as a monk in, in uh, Vietnam, during the Vietnam War. And, uh, and so, even as a young man in his 20s, as he was forming his sangha, um, and forming his real understanding and practice of the Dhamma, I mean, you can imagine what a test a war is. And many of his fellow monks died, you know, disappeared in the night. Um, some of them set themselves aflame. It was a tough, tough time where answers did not really seem uh, very obvious or easy. And the whole question of how to reconcile this practice with things like governments and armies, you know, what a puzzle. What a, what, a, what a practice. And these mantras are what work. You know, these mantras are what work. Darling, I'm here for you. Darling, I know you're there and it makes me so happy. The third one, darling, I know you're suffering and I'm here for you. So, I think the reason why these mantras work is because they're statements of reality. That's why they work. Nothing other than reality would work in, in that wartime situation and nothing else will work in re relation to this war. 
and for those who are listening on the you know internet i'm pointing to my own chest only reality is going to work a statement of reality that's the only thing that's going to work and um i think if we use the skills of discrimination that the buddha is suggesting we develop we can really get a sense of where these words are coming from they are concepts, but they aren't made out of anything conceptual. They, they're magic. They're, they're miraculous, right? Um, they take the form of words, but they're speaking from way beyond words. And we know that. It's so simple, isn't it? I don't know if these are the words that work for you, but most of us have words, and we, when we hear the words, we just know they're true. And it's our job. It's, it's, if we want to be, if we want to mature, to recognize the depth of these words and to and to understand their source and to relax and be that source. Uh, as I came up from Rochester, we saw this, this, they're, they're building a new power line up by 52. I was looking at this power line all the way up and I and and as and I suddenly this 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 phrase came to me, which I think is true. A mantra is a power line to source. That's what a mantra is. If it works, it's like there's no question where the power is coming from here. It's it's the mantra is opening that channel, and we can feel it, can't we? Darling, I'm here for you. That's coming from nowhere and everywhere. Now, the last point I'd like to make is, as I understand it, the path is a path to understanding our true nature as the nowhere and the everywhere. That's who we really are. That's who we really are. And the Brahma-viharas, the four divine abodes, the f it's actually just one, the abode of metta, loving-kindness, but it takes flavors. It takes the flavor of compassion. It takes the flavor of joy, sympathetic joy. It takes the flavor of equanimity, which Thich Nhat Hanh translates as inclusiveness. And we can understand, and I think the Buddha is urging us through the practice of the Brahma-viharas to understand the Brahma-viharas is our true nature. You know, we... We experience ourselves usually as the constricted, fearful, you know, worried, troubled, challenged human being. That's kind of the human experience. But what is that that knows that being? We're experiencing ourselves that way. See, I was talking about in terms of attention. Our attention is going to this. But wait, what's the source of the attention? That's who we really are. That's love. And then we say, wait, I am really love? But love doesn't have a form. It's, it's like, how can I understand myself as love? It doesn't have a form. It's like, it's just conceptual. It's, it's open, it's nice, etc., etc. But how can I be that? Well, that's the practice, I think. It's knowing ourselves truly as something beyond this limited body and emotion and, you know, tight little knot of thoughts. 
we need to understand ourselves as something different from that. It happens to be formless and infinite and eternal. And it's constantly sending signals to the tight, fearful inhabitant of the house to loosen up. And that tight, fearful inhabitant will loosen up if, if, if the skill for listening to the signal is developed. And when we listen to darling, I am here for you, a loosening starts to happen. A loosening starts to happen. And this is what he just, the Tisnot Han described. The loosening happens until this completely dissolves and knows itself as this. That's how it works. That's, that's the, that's the practice, right? And so, the Brahma Viharas are who we really are. We, we, we want to cultivate a way to understand ourselves as the house, not the fearful inhabitant of the house. And that house is so big. The kids are going to be in a minute. I'm just going to read you one last little short story that, that, that from Tich Nhat Hanh that tells you where this is pointing, and then we can bring the kids in. I'll keep my eye on the door because they show up there, right? So this came from a video which you can see on YouTube. And in this YouTube, a young couple, they look like they're in their late teens or early 20s, but they are passionately in love, obviously. They came up afraid on the stage to ask Tishnahan a question. You know, it's so touching. And the guy was appointed, apparently, the one to do the asking. But his girlfriend is right next to him, you know, very attentive and listening. And the young man asked Tichnat Han in one of these sangha settings, satsang settings, the young man's question to the Buddha is, if Buddhism supports love for Mother Nature, why doesn't it also support romantic love between two people and demonstrations of affection between two people? <laughs> And Tishnat Han answered. And I think you'll see the connection as to what I've been talking about and what, he's, what his earlier teachings have been as to what true love is and what its possibilities are. He says, romantic love. And he looks at him. You know. <laughs> if you are successful, then you will cultivate a lot of loving kindness and compassion. And very soon your love will be all-embracing. The other person is no longer the only object of your love because your love continues to grow and your love will embrace all of us and happiness becomes limitless. That is the love of the Buddha. That is the meaning of the fourth element of true love, inclusiveness, equanimity. If it is true love, it will continue to grow and include more and more not only human, but also animals, vegetables, and minerals, and that is great love. That is the love of the Buddha, not excluding any beings. In true love, your love continues to grow until it includes everyone and everything in the cosmos. And that's reality. That sounds like reality to me. And it's a little bit hard to grasp intellectually, 
Well, it's our job to understand it viscerally, isn't it? Isn't that the path? And what a wonderful, uh, what a wonderful path to be on, to understand love in that way. I think. So I still don't see the kids. So if there's any comments or questions, we could probably take one at this point. Oh, hi, Jean. He, he uses the word, in, in, in the Dhamma talks that I've listened to, he likes the word inclusiveness for equanimity, this all-embracing quality. And it, it comes close to reality itself. I mean, the way he uses it, and it's, it's everything. It's everything knowing itself, it seems to be. Um, which is consciousness. I mean, it's another way, consciousness knowing itself. That seems to be where he's going. And I've actually never heard him use the word equanimity, but you can kind of understand it, right? Because it's um, if you are, if we are, if our true nature is reality, we're at ease. Because everything happens within us and everything's okay because it's reality. And again, the path is like getting to a point of really feeling that viscerally and and you know, knowing how with our limited body mind we can find these channels to this larger, uh, greater dimension that's that's what's real. You know. Does that help? Does that get to it a little bit? Inclusiveness. Oh, yeah. He, oh, um, you know, it's interesting. His his four mantras are the the four mantras that he gives are uh, loving-kindness, joy, and compassion mantras. I don't think he actually has an equanimity mantra. Uh, that, not, not that I've heard yet. Yeah, do you have a question right behind? Yeah. It was a difficult um, lesson for me because at the beginning, when I was on my way over here, you know, there's a lot of hatred and violence in this world. And to talk about and say that love is reality was really difficult um, but I really appreciated the way you moved um, through the talk and it also reminded me of our divine abodes about gladness so when you ended about your gladness gladness and yeah. so when you ended your talk with that particular story about love as its all-inclusiveness I became glad and I finally got that half smile so I thank you for that oh good yeah thank you this talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.